they would need some guidance through a very fairly complex legal process. And to be able to give them that guidance and work with them is quite, uh, it's quite, uh, uh, you know, satisfying is not the right word, but it's important and I think someone needs to do it. By law students. For past, present, and future law students. Bringing you information to help your career. This is The Law School Show with Rishi and Chris. Lena. This is exciting. Where are we going? <laughs> I kill you. <laughs> Take three. Take four. Oh, hey, Josh. Take 562. 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited about this interview. Who are, we, uh, who are we talking to today? Yes, so today we have Vasu Naik, and she is just fascinating. She started her own business, her own defense company, uh, after moving to Canada, and she does child protection defense. But didn't she have a background in IP? Yes, she did. So Vasu used to work in a number of countries before she moved to Canada and she used to do IP but then after moving here she found child protection a lot more fascinating and a lot more relevant so she opened her own company. Can you believe it? Right after moving? Wow, this sounds uh, like an incredible story. Let's, uh, let's go chat with her. Yeah, let's do that. My name is Vasu Naik and I'm a sole practitioner working in the area of child protection defense in Ottawa. So I guess, um, if you could, could you tell us a bit about yourself without talking about the law? Oh boy, okay. Um, so I was born and raised in India. Uh, I went to law school in India. That's not talking about the law, I just went to law school in <laughs> India. I came, I've lived in several countries around the world. I've lived in Singapore, I've lived in Sweden, I've lived in San Jose, California, and now Ottawa is home. So I came to Canada, I came to Ottawa in 2009. Um, the only person I knew in the whole city, in fact probably the whole country, was my partner at that time. Uh, my first few friends in Ottawa were uh, through a wonderful book club here and they continue to be good friends and it's six years down the line I'm still part of that book club. Did you yeah. practice in all of those other countries you mentioned? Yes, I did. All of them? Yes, except, uh, well, in San Jose, California, I was there for a very short period of time, for a period of about seven, eight months, and I had just moved from Singapore where I was with Cisco Systems, so it was not really practice in that sense, so, yeah. And was it IP in all of those Yes, places? so before I came to Canada, much of my work uh, life was about intellectual property law. Uh -huh. uh, when I graduated from law school for a short period of time, I did work with uh, uh, constitutional lawyers and human rights lawyers in India, and that was my first year of practice, and in some ways it was, uh, in India it was then called apprenticeship, and very similar to articling here. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with them for about a year. We did a lot of fairly interesting human rights type cases. And then I worked for a short period of time with the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, with their Asia, I think it was South Asia chapter based in New Delhi in India. 
So after that, I started to work with an IP boutique IP firm that did uh, intellectual property rights and spent much of my working life in India with that firm. So that's what I did before I came to Canada. And I've worked in the area of intellectual property in different capacities. I've worked with a law firm. I've worked in-house with Cisco Systems. So it's been different kinds of work. Wow. Speaking of transitions. Yeah. Yeah. So how was um, the transition to Canada? What made you choose a different field you mentioned? Yeah. So when I came to Canada, I tried to do intellectual property law. Uh, I, I did start with a small firm in downtown Ottawa while waiting to complete my requalification process here. I started working there, uh, not in the official capacity as a lawyer because I hadn't yet been called here. But in, in the course of the time, it was a wonderful small firm that I started with. And in, in a short period of time, I've, I found that IP law in um, Canada, probably North America, no, I should say US and Canada, uh, is fairly mature. It's a mature jurisdiction for IP law. So prior to coming here, I was in India and Singapore. And that IP law there at that time was just developing, right? We. It was it was a time when new law was coming into force. There was and when I was with Cisco Systems in Singapore, I was really a brand protection counsel for Cisco Systems, and I was doing uh, uh, following through with uh, prosecution of infringement claims, that kind of thing in Asia, which is a big place to be in mm -hmm. for that kind of work. And prior to that, when I was with the law firm in India. Uh, IP law had just changed quite a lot in India because India had become a, a party to the TRIPS agreement at the WTO and the transition phase for it to move its laws to be compliant with the rest of the world was just coming in. So new laws were passed and there was a whole lot of new things happening and that made working in the field of IP interesting. Hmm. It also was fun because I did a lot of community rights when I was in India as part of IP and people don't think of that that part of intellectual property law. So a big part of what I did was um, community rights called geographical indications, which is part of the IP portfolio outside of the four well-known patents, copyright, design. That's what you most people would know, but there's a whole other part called geographical indications, which would be something like champagne or basmati rice or darjeeling or right. uh, tea or turmeric. All, all of these, turmeric, not so much geographical indication, but the other three. So it would be, and, and it, these things are there all over the world, but they form community rights for the community that produces it in terms of the geographical location. So you cannot call a sparkling wine from Canada or grown in Quebec with with grapes that are grown in Quebec, Champagne, because it belongs to the Champagne region in France. So I did a lot of work for um, for producers of basmati rice in, in India and Pakistan, because that's the area where they where basmati rice grows. And yep. did a lot of work for a government agency in India that dealt with tea, so Darjeeling tea, Assam tea, you know, Nilgiri's tea. These are all uh, geographical indications particular to a community. So to go back to your question, when I came to Canada, yeah. these were not issues that were top of the mind in terms of IP protection. Right. Yeah. And um, since I was moving to another country and another jurisdiction, I had spent by then a good part of my life in IP law, my working life in IP law. So it was a good time to try something new. 
And so I wanted to do something that was uh, more relevant to everyday lives of people. And so I explored the idea of getting into family law. Sort of tying it into the community standard or like... I think my heart lies in doing that kind of work. So right. if, if I could, I, you know, I would have uh, made that transition anyway. And I, and I ultimately did. Great. And how would you say, um, aside from the fact that the community work is not as big an IP here, how is work in Canada in the legal circles different from work elsewhere? Um, I think I've been very, very fortunate in the sense that I have transitioned quite easily. Um, I know of other people who've had a little bit of a struggle and it's hard to sort of break into into the legal field. but. I, it was easy for me to get into the IP field when I first came in because it wasn't so hard. I had done IP for a long enough time. Uh, I think the transition part of being called was a little bit longer because of simply how the process works. But otherwise, uh, once I was called, it was it was fairly good for me. You know, I was fortunate in many, in many, many ways. Yeah. Your story is really incredible. You, so you called, were called to the bar and then you opened your practice right away, right? Um, not entirely as a sole practitioner. So I was called to the bar in June 2010 in, in, uh, in Canada, in, uh, at the LSUC. And so uh, soon after that, I started working with a really small family law firm here in Ottawa. Uh, my focus of, focus of my practice there was also child protection law. I did some parts of family law, but not a lot. And um, over the course of working there for about a year and a half, the area of law, it is difficult for firms and particularly larger firms to sustain two lawyers doing the same kind of work. There isn't enough, well, there's, I'm sure there's, there are enough clients, but there just isn't enough in terms of being able to, for a, for a small firm to pay a lawyer a full-time salary on this kind of work. So my my interest was in doing social justice issues, which does not bring in quite as much as uh, non-social justice related files, right? So it, it's difficult for any firm to con sustain their practice entirely on this kind of thing. So I, I decided instead to start on my own, and that's pretty much what I did. And uh, it's been two and a half years, and it's actually been quite good. So how long after you passed the bar did you start your own practice then? A uh, year and a half, yeah. Wow. I didn't have to, the, the uh, one, one aspect though is that I didn't have to article. So they exempted me from articling. So that 10 months that any other new lawyer would have spent in articling, I did not have to do. Hmm. That seems like a natural transition into speaking a bit about that sole practitionership and practitionership. Um, I guess, could you tell us more about your experiences uh, as a sole practitioner in, in this field? And then we'll come back maybe to a bit more in detail about the child defense work too. Okay. So um, if you ask me, I, I would rather not be a sole practitioner. Uh, some people really enjoy the business of running a law office. Yeah. Uh, it's not my strength. I don't enjoy it. But the nature of this work is such that either you work for yourself and you build a practice for yourself, or you work with maybe one other lawyer who might be in a position to sort of do the same kind of work. It's unlikely that big law firms would be interested in hiring someone who does 
primarily child protection work. And, and there are difficult issues, and I, uh, I'm not judging here. I'm just saying that it's not, it's not an area of law that big law firms that do family law even would be interested in. So um, when I started off my own practice, I was fortunate because, again, I didn't have any legacy to deal with. Right? So I started on a clean slate, and I started off with, uh, you know, good practice management systems that I put in right away from my, from my very first file. What kind? So what kind of practice management systems? Okay, so, you know, your filing system. I'm not inheriting files from anyone, so I don't have to deal with somebody else's legacy of how a file was kept. Right. So one of the first few things I did was my, my office is quite electronic friendly. So I get my faxes by email, which means that it comes as a PDF document, and I can save that onto my network as a electronic file, which means that I don't have to physically be in the office for me to be able to access my file. And um, it was interesting to me because when I first came to Canada and started working in the area of child protection and family law, I found that it was not technologically friendly. Like everything was still quite paper intensive. So you needed a, a physical file, you needed to print your faxes, you needed to print all of your correspondence with clients. A lot of the lawyers exchanged correspondence by fax instead of email. And it was surprising to me because I was coming from a developing country where a lot of it was done by email. Hmm. So it just, it, it was surprising to me really. And I think it comes from a little bit with respect to the age of the bar. So a lot of senior lawyers are still sort of used to the idea of using faxes. and But you'd see with younger firms, younger lawyers, there's more email. There's also, of course, you have to consider the confidentiality of the email, and lawyers feel a little bit more secure using fax right. as opposed to email. Uh, it's less, young lawyers are less apprehensive. They've started to use text messages to, to communicate with clients, and you won't see that very much with classic, old-school lawyering, right? Wow. So one, the electronic you know, uh, ability to electronically access my files from anywhere else was a big thing that I, I dealt with. Um, you know, having my, being able to actually fax my own documents from wherever I sit, I'm sitting because my fax is electronic too. I don't use a actual physical fax machine to fax. Uh, those are, you know, small things that you can do to make your life as a sole practitioner easier because you don't really have, I don't have an assistant who will, you know, print the fax, scan it, put it into a place where I can get it. So it makes my life easier, really. So that's pretty much, uh, you know, up to each lawyer's um, comfort level, really. Mm. So. It definitely seems to, yeah, assist from a sole practitioner. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't imagine not having access to my files if I was not in the office. So let's say I go to the courthouse one morning and I have a matter at 9.30 and my next matter is at 11 o'clock. So my 9.30 finishes in 15 minutes and I have to wait until 11 instead of walking back to the office, which fortunately for me is about five minutes away. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. if it's really cold, I choose to sit in the library and work on my files and I don't really have to physically carry the file with me. So I get into my VPN and I get access to my documents and I'm able to work you know, without having to come back to the office. Well, must be much easier. It is, it is. Yeah. And I think, in general, people are moving towards that, lawyers are moving towards that, but it's still a slow process, I find. 
What about in terms of connections when you open a new practice, especially in a new country? Mm-hmm. It must be not easy. No, and again, I think I, I have to say I've been really, really fortunate in the sense that I have not actually done any any kind of uh, advertising for my practice at all. Mm-hmm. So it most of my clients are by word of mouth. Either my earlier clients will refer new clients to me. Uh, there are referrals from other lawyers in the bar who would refer clients to me. So a criminal lawyer might le- refer a child protection client to me or a family law client to me. Uh, other lawyers in the family law area who don't do legal aid or even lawyers who do legal aid and may have conflicts might refer a file to me. Um, I, I've built a bit of a connection with the shelters in Ottawa and I work closely with some support workers in Ottawa and they refer clients to me. Um, really, that's it. I'm, and I'm, I'm not done anything extraordinary to sort of make connections apart from really working in the field of social justice and meeting people that work in the field of social justice. What about those first people? The first few who came yeah. to me? Uh, like I said, the first few months were in, a, in another place with another lawyer and uh, that gave me access to files where I could start appearing in courts and then people would see you there and you know you start building connections really through being in court a lot. I'm, I, I think Elena's a little bit more familiar with child protection law. Um, I, I'm not. Could, could you elaborate? Exactly. Sure. Sure. So in, in Ontario, the child protection <coughs> law is governed by an act called the Child and Family Services Act. And essentially, it's an act that deals with, um, with the best interests of the child in situations where uh, parents might require some help in caring for the child. So that act allows for a child protection agency to become involved with parents and uh, sort of assist them in either caring for their children in some way or if they find that the risk is quite high, it allows them to remove the children from the care of the parents and place them in foster care. And it is in situations like that uh, that a parent requires a legal counsel to appear on their behalf and protect their rights to try and either bring the child home or have the child placed with extended family members. So there's a broad range of, of uh, things that a child protection defense lawyer can do, but a, a, a significant part of it would be representing the parent or a caregiver who's had the child in their care in the past and the agency has intervened in some way, sometimes not necessarily by taking away the child from, from the caregiver, but essentially saying that we need to look into and supervise your ability to parent this child. So the extreme could be taking away the child. Mm-hmm. The less intrusive measure would be let's try and work to make, make to ensure that the children are not at risk. On the lower end of that spectrum, what sort of um, things might the court recommend as far as... Uh, assistance or guidance so at the lower end of the spectrum there may not even be any court involvement okay so the children's aid society which is the agency uh, in in uh, ontario there's very many of them depending on the geographical region that you're talking about okay. would become involved with a parent if they got a call from an anonymous scholar or a teacher or a doctor or a nurse because some of these people have a have a positive obligation to report if they think that there are concerns. Mm-hmm. So then a child protection worker from the agency will come in, speak with the parents, make an assessment of whether 
at what level of the spectrum should they intervene. So if they feel like it's not necessary to remove the child from their care, then they could basically say, would you work with us voluntarily? And they would lay down some conditions as to on what basis would you work voluntarily? We would like you to do a parenting program. We'd like you to complete some drug screens. We'd like you to go to anger management. And if you do these things, we don't necessarily have to take the child away from you. So in effect, there is a positive obligation on the parents to do something. And so they may require the assistance of counsel to say whether or not that's warranted. So even though it's not in court, you may still require a lawyer. Right. And so that starts at the lower end of the spectrum, but at the very high end of the spectrum, the agency might remove the child from the care of the parents, right. in which case the matter will be in court, and it would be like uh, any, well, not like any other matter, but like a typical file that would proceed in court through various hearings. Right. How long would you have each file for then? Is it a long-term process, or is it...? It depends on the nature of the file. So if the child has been removed from the care of the parents, uh, by virtue of the legislation, if the child is under six years of age, then ideally that we should be at a point of having a permanent plan by the end of the one-year period from the time that the child was removed from the care of the parents. If the child is over six, then you have 24 months. So typically you could carry a file anywhere between a year to two years to two years, six months. Hmm. Yeah? What do okay. you like about your work in child protection? What do I like about yeah. my work? Yeah. Pretty much everything. Uh, I think it gives me the ability to connect with people who are in fairly, fairly vulnerable, marginalized place in life. And it, it allows me to represent them to ensure that their rights are in some way protected. And uh, it's important that they have some kind of representation because if they have reasonably good representation, there's every likelihood that they can work with the Children's Aid Society to try and have the child back in their care. They could, you know, present alternate plans. They, they would need some guidance through a very fairly complex legal process. And to be able to give them that guidance and work with them is quite... Uh, is quite uh, you know, satisfying is not the right word, but it's important, and I think someone needs to do it. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you're also dealing with, you know, emotionally charged situations, and well, mm -hmm. how, how do you find as a practitioner you manage kind of the emotional aspect of your work? It's not easy, and but you learn over a period of time to find uh, some ability to distance yourself from the everyday difficult emotional parts of, of uh, you know, your clients, and they come to you at a very, very emotional time. So you have to manage that expectation of your client. You also have to be a little bit clear about your role. So you're not a social worker. I'm not a social worker. I'm not trained to be one. So I have to, at times, tell my clients that, you know, my role is to protect your legal interests, but clearly you need some more assistance. And... Um, Personally, as a lawyer, I try to find and connect them with that assistance. But different lawyers work differently. And it's not, you know, some lawyers will say my job is to 
to make sure that you're legally protected. And that's fair. That's absolutely fair to say, I don't have the bandwidth or the skill set to be able to deal with that part of your life. You have to look for it somewhere else. Yeah. And some other lawyers will say, okay, I, I have to protect your legal interests, but here are a bunch of people or organizations that you can call for other, uh, you know, other support services. Yeah. So it's, it's not... Uh, easy to balance that emotional connection, but you learn over a period of time for pure survival. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Speaking of that, when we first spoke, you mentioned that in a child protection defense, you don't win all the time, so it's something you have to go into not expecting to win. Right. So in uh, as a child protection defense lawyer, Uh, you have to realize that often your clients don't come with one difficulty. Their lives are quite <coughs> difficult. Their, their situations and circumstances of their current lives are uh, very complex. There's a history very often of uh, children being in care and then you know becoming parents whose children then go into care. And it's not easy for them to deal with this on, on an everyday basis. So um, when they come to you, because of the very strict timelines in the legislation in terms of how quickly they have to meet the expectations of the society, of the Children's Aid Society, or even the court, if there's an order of the court, uh, in terms of meeting those expectations, sometimes a year is not enough because you know, there might be four things that they have to do. And they might have to attend a parenting program, they might have to get a mental health assessment, they might have to follow through with the recommendations of the mental health assessment, they might have to do uh, addictions assessment, they might have to find housing. And all of these, uh, all of these goals, to get to these goals, there are often long wait lists with, with support service providers. But the legislation is clear. If the child is under six, you have one year. If the child is over six, you have two years, 24 months. Mm -hmm. And the legislation and the support services that are available don't always, you know, meld together in a, in a nice, neat fashion. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is often clients come from a difficult place and it's not like they can snap their fingers and say, okay, I'm, you know, now that this has happened, I'm going to go and do these parenting programs. I'm going to do these anger management programs. So it mm -hmm. takes them a while to get to that point. And, um, you know, in, in those circumstances, when you go to court to present evidence, you might not always have the best evidence to present because your clients are not in that place yet. So from a legal perspective, as a lawyer, when you go to court, It's not like any other civil litigation proceeding where you can have an affidavit with five, six, ten different exhibits to, you know, uh, sort of put forward your client's position. So often you're going from a place of weakness, and um, and so you have to, in some ways, it, you have to find all your loyally skills to kind of put that before a judge. And because of the position that you come from, you don't always succeed in court. And um, you have to kind of come around to the fact that if your matter is at trial, uh, very often it is likely that the court will make an order taking away the children from, from the parents. And you have to be alive to that idea because you have to not only talk to your clients and set some expectations, but you also have to know 
um, how much work you need to do to give your client his or her day in court. Mm-hmm. It also sounds like there's more creative work involved in that. Uh, well, I don't know if it's creative work, but I think you often have to, um, you know, find ways and means of getting uh, the right evidence before the court, not necessarily because your client brings it to you, but because you have to hold a state agency accountable for the actions that they're taking, right? So if they're taking away a child, you they have to still show that this child is in need of protection. And maybe your client doesn't have enough evidence to show that they've dealt with all of the expectations, but perhaps those expectations were not warranted in the first place, and that's where you come in to say, well, you want them to do an addictions assessment, but there's really no evidence that my client was using any drugs. Mm-hmm. So why 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 would you want an assessment? So it's not necessarily creative, but I think you have to go beyond the usual of calling your client and saying, look, we, we have a motion coming up, and I need you to bring documents A to C, A to L. You know, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. You have to work with them to sort of make it happen. Generally, it seems to be my understanding that even broadly in family law, not just in child protective services, that it's not a, a area of law that is quite as developed as others where there are new measures and new subjects you have to deal with as um, there are common law partnerships, same-sex marriages, adoptions, and I guess it's not quite as established. Does that make, how, what does it make, mean for you as a lawyer? Well, so fam- like family law that's outside of the area of child protection, I think it has developed quite a lot and I'll be a little careful with what I say because I'm not, I do some family law but not a whole lot mm-hmm. and I certainly don't do a lot of family law that involves property. So I know that there's been, you know, changes in the law with respect to, um, you know, how pensions are divided, how you would divide RRSPs, you know, the equalization claims and I don't know enough about it to say, you know, that that you know it hasn't developed at all. I think it has, and I think there's new case law with respect to common law partners and division of property kind of thing. But uh, there are emerging areas of, of not necessarily law, but emerging um, situations in family law that make family law quite interesting. So, you know, for instance, um, fertility law in terms of uh, same-sex partners and surrogate mothers and sperm donors and, you know, the related uh, obligation of child support. There's all kinds of new things that are coming up within this context that I think would make uh, this stream of family law quite interesting. So it would be not just the regular custody access, child support, spousal support, mm-hmm. equalization claims, but there are new contracts that you would have to develop between same-sex partners or sperm donors and prospective uh, uh, parents or uh, you know adoptive parents and openness agreements with birth parents. There's all kinds of new things that are coming up that are quite interesting. Does it affect child protection defense or is it an entirely different area? One part of it does affect child protection defense. So the in the recent years, there's been a change in the law that allows the court to make an order of crown wardship of the children with access to the biological parents, and that was not uh, that was not part of the legislation a few years ago. And that means that some children will continue to have some kind of contact with their with their birth parents even after they've made crown wards. And it's a fairly important part of the legislation because it sort of 
uh, I think I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, it comes from the philosophy that it's important for children to have some contact with their birth family, or at least knowledge of their birth family, because otherwise it leaves a big gap in their life. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's that's a new area of law, and as a not not a new area of law, but a new aspect of child protection law, newer aspect of child protection law, and. Uh, it's brought into place uh, new um, new proceedings like openness applications where uh, once a child is made a crown ward and there is an access order, if an adoption home is identified for that child, then the, the party that had access rights to this child can bring an openness application seeking for continued openness between that child and the parent or the person who had the access rights. So we've heard about Vasu's incredible transition and what it takes to run your own practice. But what about new lawyers? Is this a good field for us to enter? Can we afford it? Let's talk about that next. Stay tuned. So would you recommend a young lawyer to get into child protection law? I think it's a a good area of law in terms of exposure to court. So if you're interested in trial work, if you're interested in litigation, you are in court a lot. So it it gets you the opportunity to be before a judge, to kind of make arguments, to attend motions, more so than most other areas of law. That said, I think it's important that one not dabble in the area of child protection because the consequences of, uh, you know, not... I don't want to say improper representation, but the consequences of small mistakes in this area of law have a great impact on the client. So you want to be, I would say that if a new lawyer wants to get into this area of child protection, you require a mentor who has done this before and is able to give you some guidance. And quite honestly, I think most of the work in the area of child protection defense is funded through legal aid. So more often than not, a client will be aided financially through legal aid. And I I believe that legal aid has a requirement for a lawyer to have a mentor to get on the panel to be a child protection defense lawyer. Hmm. And I think that's completely justified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like you've got to go all in, like, you know, and and be... Uh, Well, well, learn learn appropriately, but then commit to uh, to a certain time. Certain time, yes. But there are a lot of lawyers that... um, don't do just this. In fact, I think I know only of one other lawyer whose primary area of practice was child protection. Most people do it as part of a larger practice, either with family law or with criminal law. So, You mentioned you dabble a little bit in larger family law sometimes as well, right? Uh, to the extent that I do, again, a lot of my family law work is for legally aided clients. Uh, so I will do a lot of, uh, you know, custody access, child support, restraining order type of work. I do very limited work around the issue of property, equalization of property, uh, or, you know, net family property type of thing. I do very, very little of that. It's mostly from, it's not my area of interest, and I don't think it's my strength either, so... <laughs> And is that the main difference between child protection and the broader family law, the property aspect of it? 
Uh, no, not necessarily because, um, you know, the custody access parts of family law, you will see parts of that reflected in child protection proceedings too. So, for instance, if a court is deciding, uh, you know, custody access issues, the test that they would apply would be the best interest of the child. And in child protection issues, uh, based on, depending on which part of the proceeding that you are in, the test that the court would apply is the best interest of the child. So there is an overlap in terms of the two areas of law. They're not entirely separate. In fact, I think if you if you look at um, the Law Society of Upper Canada and, you know, we, re we are required to file these annual reports every year and you identify the area of work that you work in, child protection law is not listed there. So you fall under the larger umbrella of family law. What else makes it different, though? Um, well, it's different in every other aspect. The legislation is different. The proceedings are different. The way the ma matter fun goes through the court process is different. Um, the lawyers who often practice in that area are are not uh, not the same lawyers that do family law, although you'll see an overlap. But the family law bar in general is big, very big. The child protection bar in Ottawa is very, very small. I remember you mentioning that it also happens that young lawyers go into child protection but then end up going into family law because the compensation is better? Um, I don't know if you can draw a direct connection like that. A lot of... Uh, I, I'm new to... You have to remember, I've only done this in Canada for five years, so I'm not really any authority in terms of new lawyers coming in and moving on. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of lawyers find it difficult to sustain a practice doing only child protection, and I can see why. It's not... It's, it's uh, paper-intensive. It's time-consuming. So it, you would have to spend quite a lot of time, and like I said, most clients are legally aided, and while you can be assured of payments from legal aid, it's not at the same rate as you would get paid if you were a, if you were retained uh, by a client privately because you set your rates mm -hmm. for with a private client, but you don't do that with legal aid because your rates are set by legal aid. So um, young lawyers, I, I don't know if there are very many who've come in and left in, in, in Ottawa, but there are, a, a lot of lawyers will start doing this kind of work and then... It's not necessarily just child protection. A lot of young lawyers, when they come in, will start doing work for legally aided clients, but then move on after a few years to private retainer clients. So it's a good starting point, but after a while, I, I think, you know, when you can afford to, you'd say, okay, I'm not taking any more legal aid clients. So not everyone does that, but, right. you know, that's a progression towards a larger practice. Vasu also gave us some great insight on work-life balance in her field. So I think it's a very personal choice. For me, uh, work and life are not two separate things. Hmm. I think it should form part of your part of your life as a more cohesive, you know, part. Meaning, not meaning that, you know, work should take over your life or, you know, life should be weekends but work should be weekdays. I don't see myself like that and I don't see my work like that. So, you know, it might well be that someday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon I might not be doing work, but on another day on Saturday at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon I might do work because maybe that's the right time when I need to focus and do something. So... 
I, I know work-life balance is a big thing now and everyone talks about mm -hmm. it, but I think it's largely based on <clears throat> personalities. And it, in, from my point of view, it does not have to be two completely separate compartments of your life. In your, in your experience in IP, compared to practice here now, how would you compare that work-life experience uh, balance just to, for young lawyers that might be getting into or interested in child protection or, or even family law, thinking about what is their life going to be like? Right, so I think it would depend on, on, on the area of law that you choose and, and at what level you enter. So if you lev enter at a level where you're working for a large firm, I think the expectations from the firm are quite different from when you work for yourself. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you might end up working the same number of hours, whether you're working for a large firm or for yourself, but it will feel quite different in terms of, you know, what uh, your sense of achievement. So I think it would feel like, you know, I'm doing this because it's my it's my deal and it's my office. Some people take great pride in that and feel like that's that's a big achievement. Some others would feel like, well, if I work for a firm, I don't have to deal with, you know, the administrative parts of this. But your the expectations from the firm structure might be quite different from what you would place on yourself as a sole practitioner. Going to the part that relates to IP and family law. Um, I don't know if I'm in the right place to answer that in the sense that when I did IP law, it did not involve a lot of face-to-face -face with clients. So IP law by its very nature is quite international, mm. especially when you practice it in, 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 in a country like India or Singapore. Yeah. So a lot of it is outside work and a lot of your work happens on con calls, on emails. And when I was with uh, Cisco Systems in Singapore, I did brand protection for Asia Pacific, so I ostensibly lived in Singapore, but I spent Monday to Friday in, you know, anywhere between Malaysia and Thailand and <laughs> Indonesia and, you know, Australia and New Zealand. You don't know where you would have to go for your work. So I, uh, so again, if you know, if you talk about work-life balance, you'd probably think of that as, my God, you're spending so much time away from where you live. But you make that a part of your life and it becomes less onerous hmm. from my perspective. And this is entirely personal. I know that other people, other professionals see it differently and, you know, it works for them. And I think it's an, a very, very personal type of decision that you make or a lifestyle that you lead. It's still very interesting to hear all the perspectives and mm -hmm. compare them to figure out what our life is going to be like in the future. Yeah, just having well, such like vastly different, yeah. you know, it seems like different day-to-day -day operations, right? Like That's right. Conference calls and you know, flying That's around right. meetings to right. every day in court and advocacy one-on-one. -on -one. Right. Yeah. That's right. And I think it would work for uh, different lawyers differently. And, uh, you know, when you guys become lawyers, you might find that one one part of this works for you better than the other. and. Quite honestly, whatever works for you and makes you an effective professional is what you should pick. Can you talk a little bit about your day-to-day -day operations since we are speaking of Yeah. Walk life? us through like yes. average day. Walk us walk you through an average day. Okay. So um, I come into work quite early. Uh, I'm a morning person, so I'm here quite Six early. Six o'clock, seven. No, eight. no, no. I'm maybe maybe anywhere between seven thirty and. 8, 8.30, depending on the day. Okay. And I will come in, I will catch up on a few things, and then I get to head to court, usually for a 9.30 matter. Uh, between 9.30 and 
and ten I'm I'm in one court and then often there's another court where I have to be at ten o'clock. So I'll do the ten o'clock matter that usually finishes at anywhere between ten and eleven. And uh, sometimes I will have a matter at 11 o'clock in an adjoining court. And so I finish court. So all that to say that a lot of my mornings are often spent in court. So I will be back in the office sometime midday. And um, sometimes I will have a 2 o'clock matter. And then I have to head back to court at 2 o'clock, which is why my office is one block from the courthouse, because <laughs> I spend a lot of time in court. Yeah. Um, and I will come back. Uh, at the end of the day, depending on when my two o'clock appearance finishes, um, I catch up on faxes that I've received, emails that I've received, drafting that I have to do. And, and this is why I say work-life balance to me means different things. So I would like to go back home and have supper at home, but that doesn't mean I stop working. So I, I go back home, I have supper, I take a bit of a break, but then all my emails are still on my phone, all my faxes are on my phone. So I catch up a lot in the night. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can do quite a bit from home, so I do that. So what I try not to do is call my clients once I go back home. So I try to finish my calls and meetings with my clients here, and then I catch up on a lot of my drafting work from home. Hmm. So that would be quite an average day for me. How many hours do you think you work per week? Oh, I don't know. I haven't kept track. <laughs> um, which is which is ironic because a lawyer's life is all about docketing, right? So you docket in six minute intervals, and um, so I I don't know. I I think I would I would go to I don't know fifty sixty hours a week maybe. May, some weeks may be lesser, some weeks may be more, depending on what you have in court, right? So if you're in trial, you could spend endless countless hours prepping for it and. Really, you don't go by a 45 or a 50-hour week. Yeah. So, you know, it depends on what you're doing and what your workload is like at that time. Hmm. If you were a lawyer, what would you do or be? Oh, my God. I don't know. I've been a lawyer for quite a long time now. Uh, so if I... Um, I think I'd like to say I'd be some kind of bohemian artist somewhere kind of thing. <laughs> or maybe like a heavy machines tools operator kind of thing. That's wow, quite that's a spectrum. I know, I know, I know. I, it's got to be something in my mind, right? So I go from IP to this, and then when you ask me what, what you would possibly do if you were not a lawyer, I go from being an artist to a heavy machines tools operator. So I, I you know, really, I, I think I would not, I really don't know. It's been a long time. And, yeah, yeah. and I went into, I chose law when I was 17. So it's not I ha not like I had a lot of time to kind of think about other things. I'm really, really bad at math. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, anything that involves some kind of mathematical stuff is not something that I would gravitate to. Which is quite ironic because my, my dad's a scientist and my mom's a banker. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's just hard for them to understand why I did so badly in math. That's good. Let's talk about social justice. Yeah, we... Have know, a debate. <laughs> social justice is um, always one of these things that we... A lot of internal motivators work and do good work. Yeah. Um, but the financial end of working in social justice field is yeah. like the big white elephant in the room. Right. So our debate is sort of talking about 
whether you go into it just for social justice or whether you go for it and still do care how much money you make what's, what's the balance I guess in your opinion right um, so there's two ways of looking at it right like so if you have like this burning passion and desire to do something and you feel like your life's not going to be complete if you didn't do that then you probably are I am into social justice regardless and that there are few people in the world who can do that and there are people who do that but that becomes their life and that's everything to them but there's a practical part of it for law students such as yourselves. You go into law, you you have a huge student loan to pay off, and you have to come into this workforce and think about, how am I going to live? I still have to live. I still have to, at some point, be able to pay rent, buy a house, buy a car, do the things that most people do. And I think there is a balance, and I think you can find it. And so you don't have to be all in it or not in it at all. So there's a very, very good balance that you can find. And quite honestly, I think a lot of lawyers do that. And, and so you could say in my area of law, so you could say, I will be a child protection lawyer. I will take on a few cases of child protection, but then I'll do a few cases of regular family law that are not child protection family law clients or uh, that are not necessarily all legally aided clients. So you, you, you bring in some some income for yourself that would subsidize your social justice practice. So you could do real estate, you could do wills and estates. So there's a part of it that brings in some money that allows you to give some of your time, your professional time, to social justice issues. And really, I don't, I, I, I don't know if you necessarily are giving away that time. You are getting paid for it. You're just not getting paid at the same rate as you would if you were working for a private client. So there is compensation and money to be made in, in as a social justice lawyer. It just won't be at the same level. How so if you can balance the two, you're able to make, make uh, a life for yourself that's not that different from, say, a, a lawyer who chooses to be in a big corporate law firm. How does it compare? Because I think prevailing theory in law school for students is that if you go into social justice, you should be prepared to make between thirty and $40,000 a year. I, I think it depends on where you work and how you work. So if, like I said, if you go into social justice with, I don't know, if you choose to be a lawyer with a small agency that really has a very small budget itself, then I would say, yes, that's true. But if you choose to be a lawyer like, like me and do uh, take on matters and do work that is diverse, then you don't necessarily have to fall within that uh, annual salary structure or, you know, that kind of uh, income, yearly income. So, and I know that it's not, it's, it's not easy to make that transition. And I know when you look at your colleagues who will probably be with a corporate law firm that starts off at a much higher first-year associate kind of salary, you probably feel like you're not in the same league. Uh, but I think it's it's a choice you make in terms of lifestyle. It's a choice you make in terms of, uh, you know, the diversity of work that you want to do. So I think there's a give and take a little bit on both sides. So there is a debate, but I think there's a mid-path that you can get to. And speaking of social justice, how would you say interviews in social justice legal fields differ 
not just interviews, but job searches, applications, interviews, the whole process for students getting into it? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't do any of it, so yeah, it's hard for it's hard for me to kind of uh, give you any input on that. But I would imagine that it's it's a bit harder because I think uh, lawyers or institutions in the field of social justice have fewer resources to put away towards salaries for lawyers. So I would imagine that the the interview process will be a bit different. They probably want to gauge a bit of your commitment. They probably want to look at, um, you know, how can we make this work financially for both you and the employer. So uh, I, I, if you asked me with no experience myself, I would tell you that, yes, it's probably a little bit different. And I don't know if it would matter what your uh, GPA was or what your, you know, where in your bell curve you stood in your class, but I think it would matter whether you can show prior commitment in terms of volunteer work. I I really don't know. I'm taking a shot at the dark here. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good good shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, is there anything else? Um, yeah, well, we were wondering what skills do you think contributed most to your success? Oh, I don't know if I'm successful, really. I think I've done, you know, okay for myself. So From where we are sitting, you're, <laughs> you're very successful. Well, I, I think civility. I think um, mm. I, I have a, a fairly good equation with most lawyers that I've worked with, with most uh, outside support service providers that I've worked with. And regardless of whether the lawyer is in opposing counsel or whether they're in on the same side as me, I've always tried to be very civil and polite. And uh, in terms of the nature of my practice and my personality in court, I'm sort of firm but not aggressive. So, And that makes a big difference. You know, the court sees um, your skills as a litigator. Your opposing counsel sees your skills as a lawyer as opposed to somebody that they're constantly having to fight. And I think if there's one thing that I would tell young lawyers is to is to develop a sense of civility for your colleagues. Yeah, there was a, I read a, in, in preparation for the interview, there was a Superior Court decision where you both, your, your side and the other side were both commended on their civility at the end of the Yes, judgment. I know which one you're talking about, yeah. and that was a long trial, yes. Yeah, yeah, and it was just It was a, a four and a half week trial. Wow. It stood out, and yeah. uh, I think that's a great lesson. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I think if you were to ask my colleagues about, you know, why I get referrals or why they would send me a client, they would probably tell you that, you know, it's not it's it's easy to work with a lawyer who's reasonable and with whom you can have conversations and negotiations in good faith, as opposed to worrying about, you know, is this going to become a screaming match? Mm -hmm. So that's great. Any, Anything else? Any last-minute advice for law students? No, well, you guys are doing more than you should be already. <laughs> so you'll be fine, I think. And uh, it's quite heartening to come to a social justice roundtable at Ottawa U and see so many students interested. It, it was quite nice to see, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. It's maybe the third year that I've been coming, and every mm -hmm. time I, I think about it and I think about how nice it is to see so many young lawyers interested in the issue of social justice, even if you choose not to get into that field later. The fact that you're interested enough to go in there and explore the options, I think will 
inform how you will be as lawyers in any field. This is the Law School Show. I kill you. <laughs>